Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments on Pillar 2. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our Washington, D.C. Policy on Demand studio, where I'm thrilled to finally have Mindy Hersfeld on the podcast. Mindy is a professor of tax practice at the University of Florida Levin College of Law, where she teaches international tax and tax policy in the law school's top-ranked LLM program. She also serves as counsel at Potomac Law Group, based in Washington, D.C., advising clients on cross-border transactional and international tax policy matters. Mindy has served as a contributing editor to Tax Notes International since 2014, during which time she has written over 250 articles on international tax issues, including global tax policy developments, U.S. federal tax reform, and cross-border transactions. Mindy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you finally on. Thank you very much. You've read all 250 articles, right? I, I have read most of them. I, uh, I'm not sure I can say all 250, but uh, I'm a big fan of your work, and it's an absolutely thrill to, to have you on. Um, I do want to note for listeners before we begin that Mindy is here for educational purposes and is not representing PwC or any of our clients. So Mindy, before we dive into the podcast, I had the opportunity to teach a Master's of Tax class in St. Louis earlier in my career and found that experience very rewarding. How and why did you end up in uh, academia? Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, there's there's a, many aspects of teaching that, that are super rewarding. Being in the classroom, learning from your students, is, is and, and seeing the influence you can have on, on others' careers is really uh, so rewarding. But working with clients is rewarding, too. Uh, I actually, when I went to law school, I was uh, doing a PhD in history, and so I think it was always in the back of my mind. I, I just loved uh, the academic uh, discipline. Uh, life got in the way. I had four kids, uh, and uh, I went to work. I, I loved. Uh, I loved. The, I did international M and A for many years, and mm-hmm. I, I loved that. But time to try something new, and I started, I actually was working at Tax Notes full-time for three years, writing a lot. It's very hard to make the transition straight from practice to academia. I'm sure. But working at Tax Notes and, and writing regularly gave me the ability to, to kind of think about big picture questions and and uh, get my name uh, out as a, as a writer, and that led me uh, to uh, gave me the ability to transition to a full-time academic role. So I've always loved uh, the research and writing, and, and this uh, gives me the opportunity to uh, to take on those big-picture uh, questions and, and think about policy in a way that that isn't always easy to do and when you're uh, serving clients on a daily basis. Sure. Well, and I've worked with a number of your former students that have said many great things about their experiences at, at the LLM program there. and. I will also tell you I'm a big fan of the nutshell um, that, and I appreciate you kind of taking that on to, to revamp that. I think that's an invaluable resource, particularly for those that are just jumping into the profession, and frankly, even so, some of the, for sometimes for those of us that have been in the profession a long time, 
Um, I, I will acknowledge that like on the PFIC issues, I will occasionally crack that chapter because that's not something I spend a lot of time in, for example. But uh, I think it really is, it's, it's a great resource for particularly people that are just getting into the, the career and looking for some general, albeit technical knowledge um, of international tax. On the PFIC stuff, I really that do have to credit the person who wrote the first 10 editions of the nutshell, Richard Dornberg. Right. So, but, but all the TCJA stuff, was okay. my reason. I'm happy to know that you don't take credit for the PFIX stuff, so, but I, 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 I tend more to the guilty stuff as well. So we're gonna, head, we're gonna go head first into the Pillar 2 rules, but before we begin, I would encourage listeners to check out my prior podcast with Callum Dewar and others on Pillar 2 to provide some important definitional background on these topics, because I don't really wanna, we're not gonna really cover those today. So Mindy, when I started my career almost 25 years ago, I did not think that we would see a common global set of rules in tax base, at least any time during my career. And in March of 2011, if you can remember back then, the EU proposed the concept for what they referred to as the CCCTB, right? The Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base. And I, I even kind of chuckled at that thinking, well, there's no way that the EU could all agree on a common tax base. So a little over 10 years later, we are closer to a global system with a common tax base for international taxes than ever before, and not just limited to the EU. So before we get into the technical topics, what's your view? Is Pillar 2 going to happen? And what I mean is, will we see multiple, complete, complete, or multiple countries implement these rules? And what is your view on, on timing in general? So I love the way you phrase that question and that you use the EU CCCTB as a model example of a uh, common tax base because uh, I think the likelihood of us moving to a global tax base uh, is uh, you, you could take some, uh, you, you could look at the EU's uh, trials and tribulations as as a kind of warning sign or message mm -hmm. about how likely the global tax base really is. And, and so when I think about this common consolidated uh, corporate tax base, the EU's attempt to have a common tax base across its member countries, and like you said, uh, proposed uh, at least a decade ago and then relaunched since and failed every time. And so the EU, which is a common market and has many uh, many things in common across mm -hmm. its member countries, cannot uh, has not been able to achieve that kind of common tax base. Uh, what does that tell us about the likelihood of us getting to a global tax base? Uh, doesn't doesn't send a uh, doesn't make it look promising. So. I think the only way you could think about Pillar 2 is perhaps not as a global tax, or, or some chance of Pillar 2's implementation, successful implementation, say, is a very narrow sphere, so not an attempt to, to really be a global tax base, but, but some kind of uh, more convergence to, to commonality that, that is not as far-reaching. In fact, uh, perhaps that it's Pillar 2's overly grand ambitions that might lead to its uh, ultimate failure, and, and it's, uh, it might be reincarnated with, in a smaller form, as the CCCTB has ended up being, and that also hasn't been successful. 
So what is your view on, on timing of this? I mean, do you think that at least some countries will implement and you know, the, you know, the OECD and Pascal had originally hoped for, for January 1st, 2023. We've already seen the timeline slip to December 31st, 2023. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Uh, if the, the IR applies for one day, um, I'm certainly certain that that wasn't, wasn't intended. Um, but what is your view on general timing, you know, considering the overlay and the complexities that I think it's a great analogy of the, the challenges that the EU has. And I, I appreciate this as a replacement of the existing income tax systems, but it is kind of this common base that, you know, multiple jurisdictions could tax uh, multinationals upon. So, so I, I think you're probably, I mean, there's a lot of momentum, certainly in the EU to, to adopt uh, in, in many EU countries to, to adopt this. Uh, but what that means exactly is still unclear to me. There, there's just so many holes in, in the rules still. And you, know, you spend a lot of time with your clients trying to figure out what, what these mean. And, and so what, what that means for, for a country to adopt it. And, and I don't think all the uh, mechanics of the, the rules reliance on financial uh, statement rules ha has been fully thought through. So I think that process needs to play itself out. So, so yeah, maybe some countries will uh, enact a kind of version of the model rules that, that's in, that the OECD put out. But what that means in practice is still a big open question. Yeah, and I mean, your point on the, the, the original base being financial accounting standards, um, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of challenges as we try to unpack and think about what that starting point is, particularly for U.S. GAAP taxpayers. It seems that the rules may have been written more thinking about IFRS, and particularly as we think about the consolidation type regimes that or the consolidation rules that we have in U.S. GAAP, and and how those should be um, accounted for, if you will, in kind of the opening balance sheet, you know, there's just, there's frankly a lot more questions than, than answers. But I will note that we're still waiting on the implementation guidance at the time of the recording. We've received the model rules and the commentary. I think that the UK is, has said publicly that they plan to at least release some draft rules this summer. And I think the OECD has said that we could get additional um, that we should get the implementation framework by the end of the year. So hopefully that will answer some of these questions. There, there's also language in the model rules about how uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be IFRS or GAAP. It could be the individual country's sure. uh, financial accounting. And so what kind of incentives does that create for, for countries to start making changes to, to their financial accounting rules, I, I think is another question. So what does it mean to enact the rules and at the same time uh, play around with your accounting system? All right, so you've written extensively over the last few months about Pillar 2, focusing on the ordering rules um, and how these rules are calculated, including CFC regimes, the qualified the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, which is a mouthful every time I try to say that on the podcast, the QDMTT, um, the Income Inclusion Rule, and the Under-Tax Payments Rule, which is now, I think, the Under-Tax Profits Rule that made a, a conversion there in, in the commentary, and then also how guilty fits in. So can you start with providing an overview for our listeners of the ordering rules in general when taxpayers are computing their potential Pillar 2 liabilities? And then I wanna talk a little bit how guilty may fit in for US MNCs. So it's interesting that you left out of that list uh, the STTR, the subject to tax rule, which for many countries is the linchpin and the most important part of this. And, and 
think the the fact that it didn't even come into kind of how you're you've been thinking about this illustrates how uh, low a priority it's been all along, and that play, that goes into another dynamic of of what are developing countries getting from this, and and because SDTR really is supposed to have first priority. Uh, so then, uh, if you're thinking about ordering, there's the other aspect that the model rules uh, really just contemplate the IIR and the UTPR as being the globe regime. Right. Both the way the, let's just call it the domestic minimum tax, uh, the QDMTT, uh, fits in and the CFC, how a CFC regime might fit in, those both appear to be later developments. Mm -hmm. and, and so you see this kind of disconnect or, or not fully fleshed out QDMTT rules within the model rules, which, which still talk about GLOBE as comprising the SDTR and the IAR and the UTPR and talk about SDTR and then IAR and then UTPR. But then, and I, it's still not exactly clear to me how, you, you have this concept of a domestic minimum tax kind of thrown in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, without even an acronym. So, so pretty clear that it was an afterthought and, and not a lot of uh, guidance as to how, what it means to be mm -hmm. a qualified domestic minimum tax. Uh, but uh, also some statements that say, well, if a country has a qualified domestic minimum tax, then yeah, then they're good. Then there's no top up, additional top-up tax needed either under the IIR or UTPR. So that language which says, oh yeah, by the way, if you've got a domestic minimum tax, then you're all good, that automatically, without any kind of discussion about ordering rules within the model rules, that automatically okay. seems to put the QDMTT uh, to give it priority over the other rules. And then... I mean, so what about the CFC yeah, regimes? Because yeah. similar to that, right, if the CFC, if a portion of, or, you know, some, uh, some portion of the C, of, of ta CFC-related taxes get pushed down for purposes of computing that globe income, then I think that, that the CFC rule then actually really comes before even the QDMTT you had written. Yeah, so, so then there's this, uh, and again, the model rules don't, it, it's not clear how well they contemplate, like, like it seems to be uh, deliberately calling a CFC regime a, a qualified, uh, uh, so, well, put that aside for, for the moment, but a covered tax, a, a tax imposed by a CFC regime is a covered tax, and, and so because the model rules call a CFC tax um, or tax imposed on the resident country that has a CFC regime on the income of its CFCs because the model rules essentially push that tax down, back down mm -hmm. to the CFC, to the subsidiary, then that uh, CFC regimes also in effect get priority. To, to your question about where, like how exactly those taxes in what's the interplay with the uh, QDMTT, I, I think the model rule, there, in the past couple of weeks, there's, there's been a lot of discussion and, and some public uh, dis statements and discussions among the uh, officials from different countries who worked on it that indicate they, they may have different views on, on how uh, CFC taxes imposed under a CFC regime. Uh, 
are, are treated for uh, in computing a QDMTT. And so because of this whole business of domestic minimum taxes and CFC regimes appears to have been an afterthought in the drafting and the negotiating, there's, uh, uh, aside from the fact that there's a lot of open questions in the model rules as a whole, there's particularly uh, important open issues uh, into how the ordering of this CFC regime and QDMTT work. Yeah, and we're going to come back to the QDMTT, but I, I, your, your point is one I think worth reemphasizing is that we've already seen sort of a split between different jurisdictions on how to apply some of these rules. And I think one of the challenges for taxpayers as well as advisors is like how many different versions of these particular rules could, could we see, right? I mean, we've even seen within the EU as part of the implementation of ATAD, like various jurisdictions even with the EU have taken slightly different approaches. So I don't think it would be unreasonable to expect maybe one jurisdiction to, to say that, you know, guilty or when we'll get, we'll get into this as a qualifying, you know, CFC regime and maybe somebody would not. And so I think that provides a lot of challenges for taxpayers trying to comply with these rules and ultimately, you know, filing the forms. Like, how does that look if we have multiple different uh, rules, sets of rules that, that companies have to comply for or comply with? So, you know, as a follow-up to these ordering rules, I know one of the concerns and questions that we get a lot from our U.S. multinationals is guilty, right? I think that, you know, when, when these discussions started, even with the prior administration, that there was some question about whether guilty kind of in its existing form could be a qualified IAR. I think that, you know, the, the most recent administration has kind of put all of their chips into, oh, well, does it matter? We're going to get to country by country guilty, and then it should be a qualifying IR, even though it's based on a different tax base, right, on U.S. taxable income principles as opposed to U.S. GAAP. Um, so what is your view? Let's start with the guilty as an IR, and then we'll come to the CFC regime. Mindy, is guilty a qualifying IR in its current form? And assuming that we don't get country by country. Uh, I think the answer to that is clearly no. The administration has, has, uh, has basically Put said that. Put the nail in its own coffin Yeah. on that. Uh, I, I mean, my question has always been, even if you went to country by country, there are so many differences between the tax base as computed in the model rules and U.S. tax principles on which guilty uh, is, I mean, guilty is part of the Internal Revenue Code, which does not use financial accounting as it's starting. I, I mean, it it does uh, and very generally, but but it does not uh, to the same, uh, not in the same way that the model rules do, and and so. Uh, why would one even think that just uh, moving to a country-by-country country system would make it a compliant uh, IIR regime? Now, I hear, I've heard people say, oh, well, other countries have said that uh, as long as it goes to country-by-country, country, then it will be a qualifying IIR regime, qualified IIR regime. But, I, I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere, and so why, like, you're going to file your return on the basis that oh, countries have said that they would accept it? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the hope for, for many of us is that given some of the dialogue and the discussion with the OECD that is part of the implementation framework, that maybe they'll provide some guidance to, to, to be consistent with some of the promises that they've made to U.S. Treasury. But I certainly think that your point is well taken with respect to at least the model rules and the commentary that it could be challenging to get there. 
Um, I, I will remind listeners, and I think you even pointed this out, that you know that you know that that one of the the differences, like b- between Cubi in, for example, with Guilty, is frankly less generous than the carve out, and so. You know, I think one could make the argument that you know there's some give and take, but fundamentally, from a policy perspective, they're trying to get to the the same place. But time will certainly tell um, with respect to how the OECD and then also how individuals, if they list particular types of carve outs. So let's just assume for for argumentation's sake that guilty is not a qualifying IAR. So is then guilty a qualifying CFC regime? And if that is the case, then potentially those taxes that are paid in the U.S. on guilty could then get pushed down to the covered taxes of the subsidiaries held below the U.S. So what is your view on guilty as a CFC regime? I think it's pretty clear from from the language uh, in the OECD documents that uh, a tax imposed by a shareholder, a tax imposed by a jurisdiction in which a shareholder is resident on the income of a controlled uh, company on all or part of that controlled company's earnings is a is a CFC regime, and the the model will say you can either be a, a CFC regime or a qualify or an IIR, and you can't be both. But that's pretty much the only thing, uh, the only limitation it puts on CFC regimes. And guilty certainly uh, imposes the in the guilty rules, the United States imposes a tax on U.S. Uh, shareholders of controlled. Uh, foreign companies' mm-hmm. income, and so I don't see any. Uh, I don't see how you make a straight-faced argument that guilty is not a CFC regime as defined in the model rules. Yeah, then I think it begs the question of okay, well then how do you allocate the taxes, particularly when if you've got this blended regime, yep. then there's a, obviously a mechanical question of okay, how do we how do we allocate those taxes amongst mm-hmm. the various constituent entities, and then obviously thinking through expense apportionment and some of those other pieces that can impact the the, the guilty calculation. I think. Uh, uh, just one of many unanswered questions. Yes, there there are many unanswered questions. But if you just look, if you're just taking the very straightforward, simple question, is guilty a CFC regime within the definition of the model rules? I don't see how you get to an answer other than yes. So well, let's hypothetically, what if guilty is neither an IR or a, a CFC regime? Uh, so let's say someone says, oh yes, maybe you're a CFC regime, but because practically speaking, there's no way to allocate the taxes down, then uh, we, uh, the, the fact that you qualify as a CFC regime is not relevant for purposes of applying the model rules. Uh, what, what happens then? Then you have uh, countries potentially applying uh, more tax on the income of their uh, of U.S. Uh, controlled uh, subsidiaries. Right, and I think the big risk of that particularly, and this is something that you had mentioned in one of your articles with the changes to the kind of the preemptive strike the Treasury has made with respect to Pillar 2 on the foreign tax credit rules, just means uh, potentially significant double taxation. I think right, there's some question like the IAR, you know, that any taxes imposed on the IAR may be creditable, but as we start thinking about potential application of the UTPR, um, I think that gets more challenging. I would posit that the QDM, any taxes imposed or QDMTT on the local tax base should, should theoretically be, be creditable. But I, I think that there's a significant risk in, in, this, in this scenario if guilty is neither of, of double taxation and then how does that impact potentially U.S. competitiveness? 
So kind of in that light, Mindy, how have the overall policy goals of Pillar 2, and you wrote about this, been eroded by, by these ordering rules? I mean, are, is everybody still focused on the ball here? I'm a, I'm a baseball <laughs> fan, and uh, I, there, you know, there's a concept of a knuckleball that I feel like this, you know, where it kind of moves around in an unpredictable fashion. I'm trying to figure out how to get from the knuckleball. I think there's a big question about what the policy goals uh, were to begin with. So, so the Treasury Secretary has talked about ending the race to the bottom and, and um, also said that this uh, a global minimum tax would make U.S. businesses more competitive by ensuring that, that uh, all con- there's a, a, ta- a minimum tax rate imposed in, on the earnings in all countries. So... If you take that at face value, that, um, then I think that the ordering rules could could do uh, probably achieve those those goals of um, ensuring a global minimum tax. Whether that helps the competitiveness of uh, U.S. businesses, whether that brings more jobs to the U.S., I, I think is an open question. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's turn back to the QDMTT. We we talked a little bit about this, but you've written extensively about this. I mean, as I mentioned, many of us have been focused on the IR, the UTPR. Um, as there was scant detail about the QDMTT and the initial Pillar Two model rules, and then we got some more detail in the commentary. Um, and I'll also remind listeners that the QDMTT is an optional regime, unlike the IR, UTPR, for countries to be considered Pillar Two compliant. So how did we get here on the QDMTT and how does this, how does the QDMTT kind of fit within those policy goals that you had just mentioned? Yeah, I, I think uh, that QDMTT is completely consistent actually with the policy goals of achieving a domestic minimum tax. The QDMTT much more, I think, than the other aspects of the, of the globe uh, regime really incentivizes individual countries to top up their taxes and remove incentives uh, and preferences and uh, impose a more, have a more uniform tax base overall. And so if what you're seeking is a more effective minimum rate of tax, not just a statutory uh, minimum tax rate, but an effective tax rate, then I I think the QDMTT potentially achieves it. because it incentivizes mm-hmm. countries to, to enact a, such a top-up tax to uh, avoid having to their resident countries, the companies or, or their companies located in their jurisdiction being subject to the IIR or the UTPR right. somewhere else. And I think Ireland is, is a good example of that, that has said, you know, originally, like, so they were, you know, obviously at the 12 and a half, and they had said, well, maybe they'll change the corporate rate up to 15, and then I think they've kind of backed off that and said, oh, well, we'll just adopt a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax so that to the extent, you know, just to avoid other countries from being able to, to pick up that delta between the, the globe rate and, and the actual Irish taxes imposed. So with, with that in mind, is it, is it just inevitable then that everyone is going to adopt a QDMTT? And I guess maybe that's a little bit of a broad because there's a lot of you know, countries on the globe, but that everybody who's really interested in this from a policy, every country that's interested in this from a policy perspective is ultimately going to adopt a QDMTT even though it's not required to comply or required from a pillar two perspective? Yeah, uh, so, so that's why in my most recent article, I, I look closely at the consultations from a number of different countries, and it seemed like that's what most of them were saying. 
uh, why shouldn't we adopt this and make sure we get to capture that income? If it's going to be taxed uh, somewhere, uh, we should be the ones to, to, uh, to have the right, we should be the ones to collect that income. Um, I think was the one exception to that Jersey, um, or did Jersey also mention? Um, I, I, I think, that. so So Jersey, also, New Zealand also, they kind of seemed on the fence, they said, we're not sure whether we'll actually collect that much tax by, by this. So New Zealand specifically said, we have a pretty high rate and we don't and offer a lot incentives. of tax incentives, right. and, and so how much would we collect from this? But you know, going back to your policy question, well, if the policy was to ensure that all countries impose some kind of minimum tax on a corporate tax base, and uh, then incentivizing countries' incentives to, to adopt this uh, does, does achieve that policy goal. Mm -hmm. So along those lines, if other countries adopt Pillar 2 in the UTPR before the US, and do you think that the QDMT could be the first piece of bipartisan tax legislation in the U.S. we've seen in quite some time? And this was obviously it was proposed by the Biden administration in the Green Book, which I talked about with Pat on a prior podcast. But in other words, is there any chance that, in your opinion, that the U.S. legislature would let countries like the U.K. or other adopters actually collect tax on U.S. income or resulting from U.S. incentives? So, so I think you've got to balance that uh, competitiveness uh, or revenue collection goal with the fact that the adoption of any part of the model rule, the OECD model rules, including the QDMTT, it requires Congress to give away some of its power to to FASWI, to to the to the guys who write the accounting rules, mm -hmm. and so I think that is now. Congress has done that before with um, uh, alternative minimum taxes right. reliant, but uh, that only lasted a short time. And, uh, and back it's been reproposed with yeah. uh, build with with. Yeah. Uh, but but I see a great reluctance. Uh, what if uh, once there's understanding about really how much that that takes away from Congress's ability to to decide what what, what the, the base is. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a desire not to have other countries um, uh, and that, uh, take away from the, from the U.S. tax base, but but uh, Congress fiercely protects its tax writing prerogative, sure. and and so uh, those two could potentially come head to head. There, there's also the other interesting thing about those consultations was, was that how much how uh, deliberately countries. Uh, were weighing their own competitiveness in adopting uh, minimum tax rules uh, versus the revenue collection mm -hmm. needs. Now, and maybe it was just this selection of countries that put out public consultations, but for all of them, the concerns about competitiveness seem to be weighing much more heavily than the revenue collection uh, desire. And, and so will countries really go ahead with this if it it has the potential of reducing their uh, um, investment, competi their, their competitiveness from a, mm -hmm. uh, their attractiveness from a competitiveness standpoint. I, it, you know, unless there is big momentum by a lot of countries, and that's essentially what New Zealand uh, says, and, and Jersey also, unless really a lot of countries do this, then why, why are they? Uh, right. 
And I guess I kind of, my view is it just takes the one country to adopt and then I, I can envision the, the dominoes falling because then it becomes more, in, in my view, a, a revenue grab at that point to, to be able to make sure that somebody else is able to, to collect those taxes. But one of the things that, that you had mentioned is the complexity, you know, a number of the complexities with the QDMTT, right? We've gotten into some of the details on you know, the UTPR and the IAR and kind of the, the base from a US GAAP or IFR from financial account, accounting statements. And, you know, I think advisors, taxpayers, and academics spending a lot of time trying to unpack these rules. But there's also a whole lot of technical issues that need to be addressed with the QDMTT. One of the ones that you raised is how these taxes are allocated amongst constituent entities in the same jurisdiction. Why is that important? And can you just give an example of that? Because it was frankly something I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about. It's like, well, yeah, that is a good question. Like, yeah. if It's kind of frustrating that the, the model rules seem to be pretty glib on the administrative aspects mm -hmm. of, of the whole regime. And, and so what once to have a minimum tax in a, in a jurisdiction, you, you um, don't, you're, for any jurisdiction where there's more than one, what's called constituent entities, the um, group entities that are members of a group as defined in the model rules, uh, you, you've got to, uh, it's not, you're not just doing a calculation for an individual company, you're, you're doing it across many, uh, one or more than one company, uh, could be uh, mul multitudes of companies or it could just be two. Mm -hmm. But many jurisdictions, first of all, many companies don't necessarily calculate uh, the, the income in a jurisdiction, taxable income in a jurisdiction on that basis if they're, they've got different business lines. Uh, but many countries also don't have a mechanism for, they don't have consolidation like we have in the mm -hmm. United States. And, and so they don't necessarily have a mechanism for allocating a tax. Countries don't necessarily have a mechanism for allocating a tax across a number of entities that, that it, uh, when the tax base is only defined on a purely on a jurisdictional basis. And, and so, and the model rules don't really tell you mm -hmm. how to do that. And, and so uh, some of the questions like countries construct, like, what if one is a loss company? And you see some of those questions are, are posed by the UK in its consultation, but mm -hmm. you, you know, ha how would you allocate the tax liability? And, and so, so those are kind of allocation questions, but then you've got, I think, really uh, like big uh, legal liability questions. Mm -hmm. Like what if one entity uh, goes bankrupt? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what if the country doesn't really have a concept of joint and several liability? Right. Who's responsible for filing the return when when uh, when the country doesn't have a mechanism for for any kind of consolidation? And also, if you think about it from the corporate perspective, uh, who's signing on behalf? Like, is it the regional control? I mean, the the other aspect of, of the model rules is that it the only kind of compliance thing I mentioned. It says like you'll file a globe information return that it seems we'll have the information for all the countries. And, and then it says, well, really you should file it for each country, but you could file it with a parent and then you could have some kind of exchange uh, mechanism. But right. so does that mean that the tax officer who's, who's signing this information return is, is effectively signing a tax return in every jurisdiction with all the liability uh, that that signing a tax return ordinarily imposes, uh, that is nowhere in right. that and, and I think it also presumes, Mindy, that 
every jurisdiction will adopt the exact same rules so that you've got one kind of magic form, right, that can be then shared across the globe. And as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you know, one jurisdiction does it slightly different as far as how they, as an example, qualify guilty as a CFC regime or not, I, I, I question how, how that kind of uniform, the ideal uniform uh, compliance could, could actually operate. Um, all right, so I want to touch on a couple of, of, of additional issues. One of the big issues for U.S. MNCs is that domestic tax incentives, for lack of a better term, like FDII, the R&D credit, other general business credits, are pushing many U.S.-based MNCs into a less than 15% globe rate in the U.S. that could subject it to a top-up tax um, under Pillar 2. The Biden administration in its green book very kind of matter-of-factly suggested that this will be fixed. Um, do you have any thoughts on either how the U.S. could address this, or really how this could impact investment incentives globally? Do we just do they all move to a kind of an above-the-line type of incentive regime, or what, what? What are your thoughts on how this could impact kind of tax incentives either in the U.S. or globally? Yeah. So, so the answer to that question probably depends on how big a fan or how much you believe that tax incentives play a role in in uh, encouraging. Uh, investment. Um, I mean, clearly, it ta or tax incentives are enacted in order, many tax incentives are enacted in order to encourage investment. Economists uh, debate uh, how effective some, some of those invest incentives are uh, versus others. Um, but if you believe that at least some of them are uh, likely to encourage uh, taxpayers to invest more than removing incentives uh, would uh, decrease would lead to decreased investment uh, and if they're removed in the US it would remove uh, decrease in the US and if they're removed in other countries mm -hmm. it, it would uh, decrease it in other countries uh, so so how exactly the different incentives are redesigned like you say to, to be above the line um, I, I think remains uh, to be seen. But uh, going back to your policy question, if, uh, if what you've done is moved uh, the income tax uh, uh, type of incentives to, to incentives that don't show up in, in the financial accounting base, that, then have you achieved something that's uh, uh, consistent with those policy goals? Mm -hmm. So in, in, I want to come back to New Zealand. In your most recent article, you had summarized, and I'm going to quote you here, that according to the New, Zeal New Zealand consultation document, if a critical mass of countries adopt these rules, in scope multinational, this is again from the New Zealand consultation document, if a critical mass of countries adopts these rules in scope, multinationals would be unable to avoid the tax and compliance costs imposed by GLOBE. The only impact of not adopting GLOBE would then be that the country foregoes the possibility of receiving any revenue from those companies. It says non-adoption won't increase competitiveness or reduce compliance costs to New Zealand headquartered companies. And this is kind of a point that, that you made earlier in the podcast. So my question for you is, and particularly in the context of the QDMTT, as you know, do a lot of countries going to adopt this? Is this really just end up being a massive compliance exercise for multinationals to be able to compute this globe income? And is how much income is really going to get allocated amongst uh, other jurisdictions? Are you saying is it just a compliance exercise and not much? I, I mean, I, I think so. So for New Zealand, which as it which says, oh, we have a high tax rate and not a lot of tax preferences, then maybe not a big difference. But for 
countries that offer a lot of incentives, uh, it, it's, it uh, could potentially increase the, the base. You know, I, I had a student who wrote a great paper on tax incentives, special economic zones in, in Chile. And, and um, if you think if if you've got to pull those incentive zones away from from because they don't uh, you wouldn't get credit for them under a, a domestic minimum top ups top up tax regime that, then you are changing you're potentially increasing the tax and you're potentially uh, uh, diminishing the com relative competitiveness of, of uh, one country versus another so so I th I think it. it is probably more than just a massive compliance regime if every country adopts a domestic minimum tax. Yeah, and I and I actually agree with that, right? And I mean, it, and it could obviously impact as we think about the R and D credit, and everything from the U.S. I mean, it becomes a massive compliance exercise for U.S. multinationals to have to compute the globe income, but then obviously also significantly impacts some of those incentives, whether it's FDII, general business, whatever, those particular credits. So I, I, I do think that's fair, but I have received the question from others of this just seems like a massive compliance exercise, particularly for certain taxpayers that really don't have a lot of incentives or only operate in high tax jurisdictions. And right. probably the answer for them is, yes, this is a massive compliance exercise right. for you. You're only operating in the US and Mexico and Canada and you know everybody, you don't have any big incentives, it's a big compliance exercise, but your point is well taken. From an overall policy perspective, it could, it could significantly impact the amount of taxes that are each respective jurisdiction collects. Yeah, and I think Switzerland, uh, its consultation made that point all, it said mm -hmm. we think uh, companies will probably be paying more tax overall uh, because of this. Um, uh, but then they end up making the same point as New Zealand, and, and so our doing something won't won't help uh, any of the companies we're trying to attract. We might as well collect that revenue ourselves. All right. So my last question for you. This is from another recent article that that you had drafted, which I found very interesting. Um, and you had you had posited that the Biden tax proposals the OECD Pillar 2 project and Russian sanctions all have something in common, and you give a policy proposal. Can you give us your elevator pitch on how Pillar 2 could be used to address these issues with individuals from a tax perspective? Yeah, so if Pillar 2 is, to, to kind of go back to your policy, what's the policy of Pillar 2? Well, uh, you've got global uh, companies that are play, using different jurisdictions, playing one jurisdiction off of another to minimize their overall tax burden. And uh, the uh, globalization ha has uh, facilitated uh, that practice, and, and so we need to have some kind of coordinated rules in order to... Um, to make sure that there's a minimum tax paid across jurisdictions. Why are we, why do we think that's a problem for companies and not for individuals? Don't, haven't, haven't the same uh, fa features of globalization also allowed individuals to, to uh, uh, have move across borders and as we've seen in, in the efforts to, to kind of impose sanctions and, and trying to trace down where oligarch money is. Uh, uh, individuals can, can basically opt in or out of, of a, a jurisdiction's tax system in, in many cases. And so why are we so focused on companies that, that are, uh, many of which invest uh, productively in, in the economies in, in which they uh, do business, uh, and not individuals who 
are much more likely to be engaging in this activity pure, purely for tax saving. Uh, so. Yeah, and you tie it in. I found it interesting. I guess a couple of maybe points because I did think this was kind of a fascinating, fascinating policy and a, something really outside my area of expertise. But because you you had given you had made the example that you know a, a number of like the asset seizures that we've seen from Russian oligarchs and it begs the question of well, Italy's got a seven hundred fifty million or euro. I can't remember what the number is of. of yachts and, and other assets. It's like, well, what do they do with that? Do they sell it? How do they allocate the money? Does Italy get all of that just because that's the ports where they were 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 found? And and I think you had posited that, well, you know, that, that potentially using those pillar two concepts to apply as opposed to sanctions may be a more equitable way to distribute whatever those collections could be across a number of different territories. You also acknowledge that probably one of the reasons that the OECD is focused on corporations and not individuals is because that companies have financial statements and actually a starting point for the numbers as opposed to individuals where there's a lot more opacity to, to say the least um, from an individual perspective. Yeah, I mean, the more transparent you are, then the more likely that people see uh, see what's going on. And that, that's also why U.S. companies, I think, tend to get more focus on, on these issues than, than uh, com companies elsewhere. Uh, but you also saw this in the UK, the non-DOM uh, regime mm -hmm. blew up. And, and so that also, I, I think, raising the, sa the same questions about why are we giving uh, some individuals privileged access to the benefits of, of uh, residency in our jurisdiction? And uh, should we be imposing more tax on their assets from other countries? Or should other countries be asserting uh, rights to those taxes or to that revenue in the same way that they're now asserting rights to, to corporate revenues? All right, well, Mindy, this was a fascinating discussion. It went faster than I had hoped. I, I'm a big fan of your work. Keep Thank up you. the outstanding work with at, at Tax Notes, and I would encourage listeners to, to check out to check out your, your articles. It's been a great way for me to keep up, and I was also going to thank you. I hadn't gotten to the New Zealand or the Jersey consultation documents by the time your last one came out, so I, you know, always timely and, and relevant summary. So I really appreciate and appreciate the, the fantastic discussion and your perspective. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. All right, and I will remind listeners that Mindy is here not as a representative of PwC or any of our clients and for educational purposes only. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Mindy Herzfeld, tax professor at the University of Florida Levin College of Law and contributing editor to Tax Notes International for joining me on the podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.